Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Today I'm honored to interview Deborah Brown, a figurative painter and brick board member, who in 2019 supported 10 underrecognized artists with $10,000 unrestricted grants. I admire her so much. It was actually her recent body of work, a series of beautiful and dreamlike paintings of the female nude, surrounded by dogs, horses, lush greenery that really caught my eye and led me to learn more about her as an artist and philanthropist. Welcome, Deborah, to my Cerebral Women podcast. It's great seeing you again after my studio visit. Uh, thanks for joining us. Let's start our conversation today by providing us a look into your early life and the decision you made to leave Pasadena, where your family was established for five generations, to attend Yale. I was eager for, I think, the East Coast experience, having grown up in Southern California, uh, which was great, but I, um, I knew that Yale had a really good art school, and although I would be coming in as an undergrad and getting a BA and not a fine arts degree, not a BFA, I still knew I would have access to the art school graduates and their faculty. And I thought a lot of the professors teaching there came from New York and were painters and had careers in New York, other artists. And it just seemed like a really good fit for someone like me who wanted the intellectual experience of a liberal arts college, top-notch place, uh, with all of its broad interests of the students and faculty, plus the exposure to the professional school of Yale Art School. So the undergraduates had their classes in the same building as the um, Yale School of Art grad students. And it was just a great way to be exposed to the professionalism and the seriousness of um, what it was to be an artist and still have this great undergrad experience. It's also, it was a, a, a chilly environment, I think. Uh, you had to be very tough. I mean, that probably goes without saying, but it, it was the right place for me, I think, because I could have this great intellectual experience at Yale College and still be thinking about being a professional artist. Mm -hmm. That's an unusual combination. So I think it was, it worked out really well. And I, I had mentors when I was there. There were, I, although there were only, I think the ratio of men to women at Yale then was, uh, was um, one to five. It, there were, it was 20% women, 80% men. So it was, uh, I mean, very different than it is now. Now you go and it's, the student body is very diverse. There's, as many women as men and so on. And there's many um, people of color from all over the world and the U.S. But it was just a much more, it was a different place then, I think. And the art world in New York was a different place too. I mean, right. which is, I think, part of how things have changed, thank goodness. But um, I made it through and it was, I think it was, it gave me the foundation for, for taking myself seriously as an artist. And everyone there is so competitive and wants to be the best that if you can take it, 
that's a good place to um, prepare you for the hard knocks of the New York art world. <laughs> and, but you were also there during the civil rights movement, the sexual revolution, a number of different things were going on. Yeah, it was pretty much all at once. I mean, uh, for example, on my on my floor of my dorm at Yale, there, it was there was a co-ed bathroom. This was in 1973. <laughs> I mean, Yale did not make any provisions for having men and women have different bathrooms. It was just too new. And so you just worked it out with the guys across the hall, you know? I mean, which is kind of wild, because I think even now there's this, everybody's in a tizzy about bathrooms and this and that. And, you know, it's just a very different environment. Then there was a lot of figure it out and things were not codified and there was a lot of tumult, as you allude to. So it was, there was many things going on at the same time. It felt free. I think it was kind of, I think what was fun was actually coming into New York, and New York was just in the midst of the financial crisis, the Jerry Ford to City drop dead, the famous Daily News headline. And so New York was in the doldrums and uh, was very much in bankruptcy. And so if coming from Southern California, that was just, to me, it was just, I mean, jaw-dropping to see the things that you saw in Manhattan walking around, and it just felt like, <laughs> I mean, some of it was on fire, some of it was really uh, <laughs> exciting and energetic, and I, I just, I fell in love with New York of the 70s, which you probably remember very well. I mean, it had a certain flavor, and um, I, I mean, I know it's kind of silly to sound nostalgic about that, but I think people can't appreciate how much of an artistic draw that was, because the real estate was really cheap, and there mm-hmm. were a lot of artists who were experimenting with performance and uh, video and the East Village was getting going um, as a really exciting place uh, as artists run spaces. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of what Bushwick was when I first came here there in 2005. Some of the same artists taking the initiative to program uh, exhibitions, performances. There wasn't a commercial element. You know, there was no no one was buying any art (laughs) to speak of. Did you consider staying in California and going to Berkeley or Stanford? I thought about going there, too. That was the other choice for me. And it was the the diversity, the sense of excitement and energy. I mean, Yale was a little bit more manageable. I mean, Berkeley is like 35,000 students, and Yale is, I think, 10 or 15. But, uh, for example, I took a course with Harold Bloom, who just died, the famous literary critic of Wallace Stevens and Emily Dickinson. The course was on Wallace Stevens, so only on Wallace Stevens. And I mean, he would narrow, he would give these lectures in a huge hall and people would come. There were bag ladies there. There were people from the community. I mean, it was just this crazy, zany 70s scene where you just never knew who would show up at this famous lecturer's uh, um, presentation. So it was, it was kind of, I'm sure I couldn't make much sense of it entirely, but I enjoyed it. And the energy of it was what propelled me to want to come to New York. Yeah, I love New York. Let's talk about your work. Tell us about your show in Los Angeles at the Lodge titled Dirt's the Only Animal Who'll Sleep With You. I love it. What was uh, what influenced that title? In fact, what influenced that body of work? That's actually for a line from a poem by um, Aracillus Girme, who is, uh, uh, I think her She's an Ethiopian-American <laughs> poet, I believe. I think she has nationality from North Africa, but she has wonderful, sensual poems about earth and women and animals. And it, she's so up my alley. My dealer, Barry Mallon, who has the gallery where I show it in New York, turned me on to her. And uh, her, her uh, uh, texts have been the title of several shows I've had. Do the poem influence your body of work? You know what, I, I can't say that. It's more that I came to see in her a real kindred spirit by chance. I mean, through Barry's introduction, 
um, of her work for me. And uh, I've become interested in her work since then, but I think I was already on this path, a kind of parallel path <laughs> to Aracillus. What's the role of the female in these paintings? She's a, a protagonist, a self-figure. Uh, when I first came to my studio area in East Williamsburg, it's very uh, industrial, as you saw. It's mostly industrial users, but there's a kind of ruined nature around. There are pockets of nature, and I actually found a number of dogs and birds in this neighborhood on my travels around it, some of whom I still have. Oh, really? Um, the birds of, also? The birds also. Oh, really? And Good for you. pigeon, a partridge, parakeet. <laughs> so, and a shih tzu, uh, the hound, beagle, la a dog that I have, trout, found on Troutman Street. So, I originally did a series of paintings like maybe four or five years ago called Runaways in which I had a female protagonist who was clothed kind of going around this quasi-industrial area and having adventures with dogs and birds. And it was based on my own experience, although the figure was much younger. And then I began to um, envision her in a slightly different role. I took off her clothes. Uh, she remained a single protagonist, but then she became many different possibilities, a goddess, a bather, uh, someone who's just renounced civilization has gone off to have her own world uh, inhabited mostly by animals. And it's not clear if she's, um, uh, I guess, a recluse or when she's in her canoe, maybe a death maiden ferrying people to the other world. I mean, she has a number of different guises depending on the artifacts that surround her, whether it's canoe, as you mentioned, or horses or what kind of scene she's in. So it really became a vehicle for me to just imagine her in different ways. It's kind of a commentary on the nude in art history because men have painted nudes forever. <laughs> and often they have a kind of dependent role. They're in a narrative that might be controlled by men or their bodies are exposed as nude for the consumption of a male viewer or male gaze. And I'm, I wouldn't say exactly upending that, but definitely commenting on that and reinterpreting it because I'm the author of them. And they don't look like I think they were painted by a woman, slightly different agenda. Uh, although the stories that they reference might recall art history narratives that you're familiar with. And the dog. Could I read some place uh, that Zeus is... Uh... Well, Zeus is the name of one of one of my dogs, the Jack Russell, uh, whom I got at a rescue, and uh, he's definitely the king. Um, and he, Zeus, just is sort of my archetypal animal sidekick, and I've used him and versions of him, many versions of him, in my paintings. He's really animated, and so when I'm <sighs> painting the dogs, I try and capture their spirit and not literally depict them so much. And so I might just start with a gesture with a linear stroke of my brush and then the the animal's gaze and stance emerge out of that. And I find that that's actually the better way to capture, I think, what I'm trying to get at, which is that they're attentive to her, they're watching her, they're watching you as a viewer. Are you the threat? Are you a, mm -hmm. a, a friend? And so Zeus is sort of the commander of all the animals in the picture. Because yeah, I think I've read that he was, he's your muse. He's, he is my muse. And of course, Zeus in mythology is the king, so he's kind of the absent man. Maybe he is a man. I mean, maybe he's the substitute for the male in the paintings. Uh, he is the only man in the painting. So he, I think it's fun to have a number of different interpretations, and I hope viewers bring that. So you are a board member of Brick? 
Yes, I served on a number of um, advisory committees, maybe over, oh gosh, a dozen years at BRIC. So they were kind of, they have their eye on me, I think. Um, But BRIC has a fairly large board. It's 25 or six people. And there are only a few artists. Uh, Lynn Nottage, who's the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, is one. And Martha Redbone, who's a wonderful performer, is one. She's a new board member. And then me. So, and I, whatever. There's three people who really are in the creative arts. The rest are drawn from the worlds of finance and real estate and media and government and private equity. And it's a super interesting board for that reason, for somebody like me, to get the perspectives of those people. But BRIC is an arts organization, and so it's vital for them to have artists, board members. And I think I was brought on as the visual artist. Uh, And then it so happened that my parents died recently, and my sister and I inherited our parents' family foundation. So this allows us to do the philanthropic work that we, I think, are particularly interested in. So Ellen and I sat down and wrote a mission statement, and I had already been supporting BRIC, but not in the scale that I now was able to. So I think for BRIC, it was a fortunate thing, and for me too, because I wanted to help other artists. It always been, I'd always been involved helping other artists through um, an artist-run gallery I started in Bushwick when I first came out there and ran for six or seven years, uh, in which I showed other artists' work. I'd been on a couple of smaller boards of artist-run organizations in Brooklyn. But this was the chance to, I think, envision something much bigger that would have at least an impact on 10 people's lives, I think, which was to uh, create a grant of $100,000, which would be divided up between 10 artists. Uh, And I conceived the structure of the award, which was in consultation with my wonderful colleagues at BRIC, which was to have nominators that we would ask to make the nominations of the artists to be considered. And from that group, we would come back to Brick and we would pick the 10. So it came away from us and then came back to us. So it wasn't just a, a people at Brick sitting around picking their buddies. It was a, a kind of an opportunity to go out and then back to us. Your selection process is impressive. I love the fact that the nominating committee includes New York-based curators, critics, and artists. And I'd like to name just a few people on the list. You have t- uh, visual artists Derek Forjour, Catherine Bradford, art professional Eugenie Tsai from the Brooklyn Museum, and Deborah Cullen from the Bronx Museum. And these are just a few names. So let's start. Please tell us more about the selection process. Each nominator, we picked 10, and we drew them from the world of curatorial, critical writing, and artist practice. So there were three possibilities, uh, evenly split pretty much among the 10. And we asked them each to nominate five people. And most of them did nominate five. Some of them nominated fewer. But it gave us a full pool of about 45 artists who came back to us. We reached out to those artists and said, would you please submit your best foot forward, your website, visuals, et cetera. And the nominators made statements about how they knew them and, and, and of why they thought they were deserving of this award, which was extremely moving. And they spoke very eloquently about these artists, and it helped us, actually, in making our selection. So we had this group of people, and then the body at Brick, there, were, uh, there was a committee, and we saw the artists' uh, presentations via visuals they submitted, and then we picked them. It was pretty... Very competitive, but we had a lot of agreement, which was good. And how long did it take you to choose the 10 from the 50? Uh, it took all day, but it oh, was... You did it in a day? We did, wow, actually, because Brick is so good because it's a media um, organ. I mean, media is one of its strengths. 
they ha- uh, the curators had uploaded all the visuals in a really orderly way, and we had a ranking system, and uh, we were there with our pencils, you know, sharp and ready to to work, and it was really efficient. So, I mean, we're I think we'll revisit it next year if we choose to do it again and see if this is the format we want to use. But I thought for a first time out, it was really good. I mean, nobody was fighting with each other. It was there was a lot of consensus and mutual like respect in our discussions of the artists it was a wonderful experience actually to be someone on the other end of it picking you know from this group i bet as you know on my cerebral women instagram page i always combine a quote or aphorism with an image to provoke thought that said please elaborate on your quote in my work i give women agency I think it's it must be intriguing for viewers to see women painting figures of women now. It's so pervasive. It's in my work and very explicit with the nude figure. But I think it's it just was a subject you didn't see. I mean, with the exception of Alice Neal and uh, Beverly Sim, uh, Semmel, you just didn't see much nude pa- painting of nudes by women. It just was not something common. And so I feel that the the subject matter available is any is limitless and it it's kind of like taking control of your own story, really, your own narrative to narrate um a fiction based on your own body and your own adventures, you know, in the world that you envision. So I guess it's, I feel like I'm giving myself agency. Maybe through that, I hope others will see that as a, a push to explore their own agency, however they choose. <laughs> as a young artist, what female artists influenced your practice? Oh, I think I liked a lot of the Western canon. I mean, I think that's what I was the most familiar with. Uh, I, I mean, my earliest, this is such a corny example, but... Uh, my mom took me to a Van Gogh show at a place in Washington, D.C. that doesn't exist anymore. It was something like the Washington Society for Arts, and they had a special exhibit of Van Gogh paintings from the Rijksmuseum. And there's the famous painting of the apple blossoms, which are white against a blue background. He had a branch, this branch of the uh, apple blossoms, and or maybe it's almond blossoms. I can't remember if it's apple or olive, but uh, the turquoise blue-green background, very abstract, and then just the white branches with their gnarly twigs. And I was just blown away by this painting. So I think probably for me that, and I went into my class at St. Agnes School for Girls and uh, painting class after school and copied it, you know, from a picture and um, walked home with it, you know, on a, (laughs) like, wet on my hands. Uh, raised. Uh, so I, I remember that being really impressed by that. And I, when I look at my paintings and look at the turquoises and the blues and the the kind of positioning of figures on that ground, I think that probably had its earliest imprint in my seeing that painting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was always looking at art from an early age. My mom took me to, that's part of the reason I named this award after her that we gave from Brick, which is because she was such an early uh mentor for me and it, she took me to museums and galleries and it was just uh she wasn't a student of art history but she just enjoyed it and she passed that love on to me so maybe we should talk about art critics the third rail <laughs> <laughs> well i think everyone wants some kind of critical feedback on their work and i've 
been happy to get whatever I have, but the role of criticism has changed so much. I mean, first of all, it's migrated to much more popular venues like uh, postings on Instagram, right. if that counts right. as criticism, or an endorsement, and a decline in serious, extensive writing in print and other formats. I mean, the art magazines used to be very important, Art in America, Art News, they all uh, there were other uh, publications, too, that came out monthly and were the things you really grabbed as soon as they came out and read whose picture, whose work was pictured, who was written about. I have a feeling that that just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I think the, the everything is online, so you might read criticism online, but it might be from a blogger. I mean, Hyperallergic has exploded, I think, because it features so many different writers writing about a whole range of subjects. And the print coverage used to just mostly be the major galleries and major venues. And now I think with things online, critical discourse can take place about all kinds of venues, artist-run spaces, I mean, things in far-flung parts of the world. So there's been a simultaneous diminution of serious venues and an explosion of populist venues. So it's kind of a mixed bag. So you have the opportunity as an artist, I guess circling back to me, to be reviewed in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And to use that to promote yourself, right? I mean, it's everything is, takes place kind of very quickly for quick consumption. Uh, I mean, I think people still follow serious critics like Roberta Smith, I think is very esteemed and we read her, but there aren't too many people of her stature and uh, there aren't many venues and outlets for people who might want to write that way or for younger critics to develop that kind of voice in a print publication like the New York Times. However, there's all these other opportunities, and it's just that they're all fighting, I think, for bandwidth. So the Times occupies a really important position, I think, still, uh, and people are really happy to get the coverage there. But I think there are thoughtful reviews taking place elsewhere. For my show in L.A., there were two reviews of the show. One was in a magazine called Juxtapose, which I think is actually a print magazine, but also online, and then in another online magazine. And both of those were very thoughtful reviews, and I was very happy that someone in the instance of these two critics had taken the time to look at my work enough and think it worth writing about during the time the shows were up That's great. in Los Angeles at the lodge, which is the gallery that showed my work. So that I have, I have really, I think it's important, but it's, it's hard to say how important it is. Collectors I think are the most important players in the art world right now. What's your opinion on the challenges facing artists graduating from the top MFA programs and at what point in their career should they focus on the role or the voice of the art critic? I think that young artists coming out of programs like that expect to have success. I mean, in the 70s, I think people hoped to move to New York and maybe get a gallery to represent them. I don't think anyone thought they would make a lot of money from their work or necessarily be widely known. But I think kids coming out of the top programs like Yale and Columbia and Hunter, sometimes they have galleries already. Often they do. And they expect to succeed. And I think they hope to have critics uh, be part of that bandwagon, but I think they expect to come with a coterie of friends from their program. They might share studio space with them. They'll be their anchor and their support network in New York when they first come here. I think they're looking for that kind of support. And then they're looking for a gallery. And then the critics, you know, they may or may not play that much of a role. I think their, their, their anchors are gonna be in other things first. 
getting a foothold in the real estate, which might mean taking a big studio with friends, uh, looking for exposure through an artist-run gallery and then maybe through a commercial gallery. And the critical stuff is the kind of the next thing that follows. Because I, I, don't, I don't know how much influence critics have in bringing artists to the attention of galleries. Like if you're an unrepresented artist and you invite a critic to your studio, I don't, I don't think now that's a pathway to get representation by a gallery. Other artists often are the conduit for that. Artists start chattering about somebody. Artists always, like, like Derek Fordure. I gave Derek Fordure his first show as an, in an, my artist on space. He was a grad student at Hunter. I, I was a visiting critic. I said, would you like to have a show? My artist runs space. And I gave him the first one-person show in this very big space. And he was all over it. He was very excited about it. We had a lot of success with his work. And he was a very ambitious and very capable guy. And no doubt he was going to be successful with or without me. But the point is, artists find out first, often, who is going to be somebody to watch. And that's that takes place all throughout the art world. I'm just giving you one example of of my knowing that he was going to be a success. But I know other people um, for whom that's true. And I think it's because artists hang out with each other. They see each other's work. They see each other's work in venues that are not widely uh, trumpeted, like artist-run spaces. It sounds like almost an insider trading tip. <laughs> I, th- I think I think it is, except that artists aren't using it to make money. They're right. using it, I think, just because it's you're always you always want to see who's the best at what they're doing and take from them, be inspired by them, compete with them, learn from them. It's, I mean, it's your, it's part of the reason to be in New York. Like if you're not doing that as an artist, you're sure not taking advantage of everything that's here. So, I mean, older artists may do this less, but younger artists definitely play in that park. And I, I have benefited from it a lot too. I think having those studio visits and exchanges is really what gives you the basis to have confidence in your work to go forward and exhibit it and have it be seen by critics to, to, to double back to your point. It's, you, you're not critic ready until you've vetted your work with your peers, yourself, uh, artist run spaces, the commercial spaces, then maybe you're ready. So do you feel that galleries and collectors are paying more attention to female artists? I think women artists have definitely become more important in Every aspect of galleries, uh, programs, uh, you see the auction prices for Joan Mitchell and uh, Alice Neal and Agnes Martin and Joan Semmel going crazy. And I, I mean, it's if you've been in New York long enough, you see how the wheel turns and people do cast their attention on things that had been overlooked, areas of collecting individuals, different groups, sex, gender, I mean, uh, race, and so on. And that's happening a lot now. And you see galleries working hard to expand their exhibition program because you get called out about it, if nothing else. I mean, it's it, part of it is that you just can't be in this world and only show, you know, white male artists. It just, you would be... I mean, you'd be embarrassed. And so I think people are being shamed into, and also their awareness is genuinely, I think, expanded. And they want to find out about what are these other voices that we've been missing. And there's some beautiful art they've been missing. Incredible. <laughs> I mean, you see like Robert Mnuchin having an Ed Clark show uh, or an Alma Thomas show. And these are people who are not alive anymore. Yeah. But their work, well, he showed Ed, I think, just when he was just about right, 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 the end of his life. But I mean, these are artists who were working side by side with maybe better known peers, and now they're getting their reevaluation and their work is being seen as equal. Bill Krasner, I mean, you can just, it's just, it's happening. And it's happening on the younger artists too, with the younger artists too. So 
long overdue and much more. And the MoMA rehang is all about that. That's incredibly interesting and refreshing. And it's just, it's just a, it's just right. It's not just right. morally right. It's right for all kinds of reasons. So, and Bill Trailer, outsider artist, being featured. Yeah, I was happy to see that. Yeah, the David Swerner show. Yes. When I came to New York early in the '80s to live, there was a show called Black Folk Art that was at the Brooklyn Museum, and it was organized by Jane Livingston, who was in at the Hirshhorn, and it was Bill Trailer and. Um, uh, Gosh, uh, like seven or eight pioneers of um, what was then known as like black folk art. I can't remember all the other artists, but uh, that's what led me to buy one of his works. That was, I saw his work at a gallery in Chicago during the Navy Pier show at Carl Hammer. And I bought one. I was a college teacher then, didn't have much money. And I still have that piece, but that was the first piece of art I ever bought. And that oh, show it was, was, yeah, just, I mean, 1983. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of amazing. And then, you know, in the early 80s and mid-80s, you began to see him appear in art galleries. So that show, I think, put all of those artists on the map. Mose Tolliver, I forget, the uh, William Edmondson, the stone carver. There were, there were seven or eight incredible artists um, in that show. And, she, and Jane Livingston and her co-curator's name, I can't remember, were the ones who put it together. So they really brought them to the fore. So that's the role of the curator. It's kind of getting back to another important player yeah, in the Yeah, let's talk world. about the, the curator. So here's somebody who is working at the Hirshhorn and somehow who has figured out that this is a really important aspect of art. Maybe, I mean, now outsider art feeds into the mainstream and those discussions have taken place across many venues, museums and galleries. But then I think it was a really new subject. So for her to put together these artists, which I, who I think were totally unknown to most people, uh, was, um, you know, unless you were in that narrow community that, um, that understood them and how they came about, you know, the broader art world didn't know about them. So this is pretty amazing. So curators can be really important in identifying artists, uh, how they get their tips, how they figure it out, I don't know. But they do that for young artists, they do that in contemporary art. And certainly they are doing that historically by bringing back figures from the past, like the Felix Vallotton show at the Met. He's a contemporary of uh, Bonnard and Vuillard. His work is amazing. I, he was a total sleeper. I didn't know anything about him. <laughs> now artists are all over that show. We are, all the contemporary artists are just saying, that show, that show. <laughs> so a curator at the Met thought, this is interesting because there's so much figurative art being done with a narrative bent. Let's show this artist who has been overlooked. He's a man, a white guy, but still... Like curators have this ability to bring back or put together or shine a light on or introduce, depending on the stage of that artist's career, artists who the community needs to know more about. So they also occupy a really important role. And unlike gallerists, they don't have a commercial agenda or they're not supposed to. So they are have a kind of countervailing force in the art world to the gallerist who is doing this for love, but also for money. So what's the role of the curator? Who are these people? Well, so I think that term has been like critic, I mean, expanded to include a lot of different players. That has some good aspects because of the exclusion of certain people from this profession. I think a curator can come from many, many different places. I mean, the museum curators are not going to be hired without a certain credential. Many of them have PhDs in art history. And I think that we have not seen an erosion of that as a requirement. Thank I think there's a certain expectation, I think, on the part of the trustees, whatever institutional hierarchy exists within a museum, that that's going to be the source of the 
of the hiring pool. However, curators now can be movie stars like Tilda Swinton. Uh, they can be bloggers. They can be people who have operated outside the traditional channels. And they might curate shows in different venues from the traditional museum curator. And I think that's, you know, the more the merrier. I, I mean, many... Uh, avenues have been opened up for expression and curatorial expression is one of those and maybe those people would identify voices that have not been part of the mix and that's a valuable thing uh, so I think all of these these categories critic, curator, artist are, have, have been enlarged and uh, we just have to accept that and apply the critical standards that I guess we feel appropriate to the venue I mean, it doesn't mean that they're immune from criticism, but we want to see what they, they do. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, deny someone the opportunity to put together a show. Okay. It makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> it does, because I look at Denise Morell, who was just hired yes, yes, at the, the Met, Met, and she's got the PhD in and art. And pitched that wonderful yes. show oh, yes. that was at the Wallach, which was incredible, and went on to the Musée d'Orsay. Um, that was really a privilege to go and see that show. And she was very tenacious in getting it out in the world because they borrowed amazing artworks and it was her idea. And it's so great. What a, She must be feeling very smug and satisfied that the Met has come back to her door <laughs> and made her part of their team. And it's really, so that's fantastic, I think. But she has all the chops. I mean, she has all the curatorial chops. So there's no, she's not operating outside the traditional system, but she's bringing it's what I was talking about with Jane Livingston and the Black Folk Art Show. Denise Morell is going to identify topics, artists, ideas, threads that others in this hierarchy have not previously looked at. That's the reason that she needs to be in the mix. Deborah, listening to you has been fascinating, and I actually have learned quite a bit. Uh, I do have one last question for you, and that is, what lasting impact would you like to have on the art world? I guess I'm interested in in ha in having uh, my work seen in the context of now, which is uh, that I think uh, there's this great emphasis on figurative painting now, and I think that that's going to bring my work into focus in a way that maybe it hasn't been before, because older artists and younger artists are working with the figure and examining what it means really to be human, I think, what it means to tell your story. And that's something that had kind of gone out of favor in the 70s and 80s. There was a lot of interest in abstract art and in, in minimal art, in the role of media and advertising and kind of disembodied authorial voices influencing our behavior, like Cindy Sherman, like structures of signification, how images meant what they meant. That's all been sort of put to the wayside. And actually, artists are now just painting and painting the figure and it's kind of a return to what it is to be human. And I think my work exists in that context, what it is to have consciousness. How can painting reveal consciousness, a story, your character, uh, what you want to say about what it is like to be in the world now. And so I certainly would like to have an impact as a painter. I feel like I have some dialogue with younger artists and this bigger uh, dialogue of with figuration right now. And then on the other hand, I hope that I'll have some influence on um, on the support of the arts right now in a small way. Yeah, it's a big way. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for what you do. And uh, I know Brick is uh, so happy to have you. Well, thank you, Phyllis. This is just an honor to speak with you, an intelligent interviewer <laughs> who's enthusiastic and down to earth and 
understands the scene. And it's just, this is a great idea to get different voices uh, heard on their podcast. I'm glad to be one of them. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. I love having you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.